Or as happened with so many times in my lesson, we're going to go back where we were before. Uh, sometimes you wonder whether we'll ever move along, and, uh, but we do uh, some, most of the time. But go back to Philippians chapter 4, uh, and that's where we're going to begin uh, this morning. Of course, this is a, uh, the text from which we've been studying all month, at least uh, part of the month. It's on our, and our general theme of uh, studying through the book of Philippians. Uh, last week we talked about um, verse 8 of Philippians chapter 4, that we ought to think on things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there is anything that is worthy of praise, Paul says, think on these things. So the apostle says that we should discipline our minds. Uh, and there are so many things to think about and contemplate in the world in which we live. Uh, the Christian has a great responsibility and certainly enormous challenge to focus his attention on things uh, that meet those descriptions in the world in which we live. In the, in the general context, we noticed last week that the pathway to true joy and peace and contentment uh, is found in this very way. It is to just change the way that we think, that people that do not think on things that are good and pure and, um, and that are true generally do not find very much peace and contentment or joy or happiness in life. But it's also about doing it's not just about thinking. And that's where Paul will take us. He does not leave this abstract of thinking on things uh, in, the, uh, in, in the abstract form of just thinking that we can think something and it will be that way. That it has to be put into practice. And that's what I want to take a couple of minutes and look at tonight. We might note, uh, this morning we might notice as well that uh, there are many occasions in the scriptures where Paul makes this very same transition. Where he talks about the importance of putting our minds on something, about thinking about something that God has revealed, focusing our attention on what God has said, but then that the final fulfillment and ultimately the, uh, the true blessing that comes as a result of knowing these things is putting them into practice. So it doesn't surprise us that we move from chapter 4, verse 8 uh, to chapter 4, verse 9, because one is incomplete without the other. So our text this morning is in chapter... We're going to look at... the. Um, uh, chapter 4, verse 9, and tried to find some understanding in the application. Paul says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I want to sort of dissect the passage because I think there's some real points to be made in the language that Paul chooses here. We'll look at some of the words that he, uh, that he employs as also, and then try to see what the general meaning of this verse is or what, more particularly, what, God, what Paul wants and God wants us to do. How do we apply what he says in this verse? In the original language, uh, the term, the, the, the verse here, the text itself, begins with the word H-A in the Greek language, ha, which means, which is a, uh, a pronoun that many times is translated by the word which or by the word what. And so your translation, whatever you may be reading out, out of, may very well begin with the word which, which things, or what things. Now, interestingly enough, there's some discussion as to what things, what things is talking about. Which things is he discussing? Is he looking back to the things of verse 8, the things that are honorable and true and that are just, things that are praiseworthy that he's told us to think about? Is he talking about those things or is he more, more generally talking about anything that Paul had related to the Philippians, that that's what is under discussion? And I think there's some sense in which, certainly grammatically, but some sense in which even contextually, both of these things could be in view. Paul certainly did want them to put into practice everything that he'd revealed to him, all that, uh, all that they had learned from, inspira- from the inspiration of Paul and he taught them in the time in which he was with, with them. He wanted them not only 
to know it and to learn it, but also to put it into practice. But I'm also convinced as well that uh, the general context of these particular passages is probably best to view the connection of the two terms things. That he talks about, think about these things, and then in verse 9 he says, practice these things. And so he's talking about in, in, in the more specific context that what you think about that comes from God, you need to put into practice. And those things that come from God are true, noble, or honorable. They are just, they are lovely, they are good report, they are praiseworthy. And if that's the way to look at this verse, then that confirms to us, I believe, that the apostle is calling on them and therefore calling on us to find out what is true and to find out what is just and what is praiseworthy by looking to what God says. And we mentioned that last week, that when he says, think on these things, and then he talks about things being lovely and worthy of respect and praise of good report, he's not telling us to look out into the world and just find things that we like or that we think are lovely and then think on those things. He's telling us there that God is providing us those things himself, that we are to look into his word. And I think that certainly is borne out in this particular passage, in this particular connection of verse 4. What's also interesting is that Paul uses four distinct words to remind the Philippians how they came to know these things, how they came to understand these things, and therefore are in a position where they can put them into practice. Again, we look at the original text and we recognize in the original language that the appearance of the very first word of the passage is the, or with the first two words of the passage is the word K-A-I, K, which means uh, both. And so the text literally reads, and maybe your, maybe your translation would read that as well, which both, or both which, we are to take those things that they learned and that they understood, they received, and put them into practice. And so some suggest that what the real analysis of the passage is, that Paul puts together two pairs of related words to describe to them how they received or they got what God wanted them to get. That they learned it and they received it, and they heard it and they saw it. So he says, what you have learned and received, what you have heard and seen, put these into practice. Now that may be the proper, the best way to analyze grammatically the passage. What I want us to do for a few moments this morning is look at the individual terms because I think they have application. He says what you have learned, you should put into practice. The word here is translated from a related noun, which mathetes, which means disciple or learner. And we find that word throughout the New Testament to describe those who are followers of Jesus that they were disciples of Jesus. In the aspect of this particular terminology then, it describes something that is learned in any way or a person come to understand. That a person understand this because they've been following someone who has been teaching them this. And so Paul's referring here to what they, the Philippians, had learned from him. He had been among them. He taught them, he'd opened, the, he'd opened the Old Testament Scriptures and explained things from the Old Testament Scriptures. He told them about the mystery of Christ. He explained to them about Jesus' crucifixion, about his suffering, about his humble service before God, and certainly about his resurrection. So in Paul's extended stay at Philippi, he had no doubt taught them many things concerning the kingdom of God, and they'd come to learn them. Paul said elsewhere that that was his mission. He said in Acts chapter 20, when he was at Ephesus, that he taught publicly and house to house, that he revealed the whole counsel of God. So it doesn't surprise us that he was in Philippi. He did the very same thing, that he not only 
began the church through teaching the gospel in its initial form, but he, in the time that he was there, he put those people in a position to learn a lot of things about the kingdom of God. Now that was essential, particularly before the completion of the New Testament, that apostolic teaching would take that form, that there would be oral teaching and people that became Christians would learn. Jesus told them that they needed to teach, make disciples, and teach them again, because that's the process. So they learned some things from Paul, what they'd been taught. But he also says that you'd receive these things. Now the word, the Greek word for received here, uh, paralambano, means to receive near or to associate with oneself. Figuratively it means to learn, but technically it means to bring something close by. Interestingly, though, in the New Testament, this word is used several times to speak to this aspect of receiving something through inspiration or obtaining something through God's revelation, through the work of the Holy Spirit. A couple of passages that bring this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, For I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you. Paul there is saying, in the context, he received this through the, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse chapter 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. And then he says in verse 4, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which also I received. So in that passage, he says, I receive something, you receive something. In Galatians chapter 1, he says there that if anyone preaches any other gospel other than what you've received, let him be accursed. You've received something. Now that's connected with the aspect of that they learned it, but it adds to the connotation that they learned it not through, through science, they didn't learn it through discovery, that they received these things because God sent them to him through inspiration. So the aspect of receiving here had to do with the, the uh, superintendence of the Holy Spirit. The Thessalonians, Paul wrote, For this reason also we are constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. So he told, said the same thing to the Thessalonians, he said to the Philippians, is that it, they'd learned something, but they didn't just learn them on their own. God sent them a message through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the work of the apostles, and what they received, they received from heaven itself. Now the other two words that he uses here are also connected together in the sense that they learned and received, they also heard and saw. The word for heard here is a common word, a primary verb, but means to hear in various senses or to give an audience to something or something that would come into your ear. So it's a word that literally means to hear something. But the word here adds another dimension to what Paul's telling them about themselves or how they come to know what the truth is. Not only had they learned it because they heard it from what Paul taught, but they'd also seen Paul. He had, had, he, he, they had heard about Paul and he had a reputation that went before him. And so what they'd heard about Paul also became a part of this element of what they'd received and what they'd learned. And so Paul alludes then to what the Philippians had heard about him. Paul's reputation was an important element, I think, of his ministry. And I think that's true, certainly it is. Anybody that would stand up and teach the truth or, with it, or that would put themselves in a position of proclaiming what God says. An important part of that particular ministry, the success of that ministry, is whether or not they're living up to it or whether or not they have a good reputation. Now, they may have a bad reputation unjustly, and Paul certainly did that in some places in, uh, under some venues. But the aspect of Paul's success in the Philippian church, or one aspect of it, was that he had a good reputation among them. So he calls on them to imitate his godly virtue. We're going to talk about that. 
that they had already come to know about Paul. So here's Paul saying, you've heard things about me. I want you to do these things yourself. And then he connects with that the word seen. And the the word I do means takes two directions in the scriptures. The word can mean to see something with your physical eye. So that you open your eyes and you see the sunshine. Or you see something physically before you. But most often when we find this word in scripture... It doesn't mean to see with your physical eye, but rather it means to come to know something or to perceive it. So if someone shows you how to work a math problem and you say, oh yeah, now I see that. Well, sure you saw it right there on the paper, but that's not what you mean. You mean now you understand it. And so the aspect of understanding and perception is the way that this word is most often used in the scriptures. Paul later on uses the very same word when he says later on, I know how to be content. I know how to, I've learned how to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to be exalted. He also uses it when he says, I know whom I believed in. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. So Paul knew some things. And what the translation of the word actually would be, as it's used in this context, is <coughs> Paul is saying, I see them. And that's what he says to them. You've heard about me, and you've also seen in me these things. Now Paul lived among them. He'd been among the Philippians and preaching the gospel and living in the city and working there. And when we think about this aspect of them seeing him, we recognize that they did physically see Paul. And maybe they worked right alongside of him, or they had a personal relationship with him. But they saw some things about Paul that helped them to know who Paul was. And that's more what's in view here is that you've lived close enough to me that you've seen how I've suffered. You've seen the decisions that I've made. You've watched me as I live. In chapter 1, verse 28, Paul said this, and it says, "...in nothing be terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake." Having Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now... You hear in me. So Paul's admonishing them to suffer. <coughs> to not give up. To continue to suffer for Christ. On what basis? He says because you saw it in me. You come to know. That that's how I react to suffering. And so because you saw it in me. In the same conflict. Then you need to imitate that. Now certainly we recognize. That that's an important perspective. From which to appeal to someone. That you need to look at this person. And you need to see them. Not just with your eye, but you need to know who they are. And that there are things that make character clear and evident. There are things, decisions people make. There are paths that they travel and and the way that they react to things that reveal character in a very clear way. And there were with Paul. How could they know Paul was faithful to God? How could they know that he was a person of good report? How could they know that he was a person that was true and that his lifestyle was praiseworthy? Because they learned it. Because they'd received it through inspiration, what Paul had taught them. Because they'd heard about Paul from others. And because they'd seen it with their own eyes. Now that's a pretty comprehensive picture, isn't it? Of how the Philippians knew this man, Paul. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, Paul told Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing, and that's the word I do, knowing from which... You learned it. When Paul tells Timothy, you need to walk a certain path, you need to believe what you've received from him, he adds to this that you can have confidence to believe what you've received because you know where you got it. 
You know where it came from. You know where you received it. Now, I think that particular statement might take two different directions in terms of Paul's relationship to Timothy and what's revealed about Timothy. We know from earlier that he had a godly mother and a godly grandmother who taught him the scriptures. But certainly in the context of that passage, what Paul is referencing here is that you know that the things I've revealed to you, they are the words of God. In the very next verse, or a couple verses later, he says all scripture is given by the inspiration of God is profitable for these things. But what Paul tells Timothy right up is that you need to hold on to these things and continue in them because you know where they came from. Now, in a sense, that's what Paul tells the Philippians about his own life. <coughs> he says you need to practice these things. Put them into practice because you've seen them in me. And so when he uses the term practice here, some translations simply use the word do. Again, the word is insightful. The original word is proso, which means to perform repeatedly or habitually. It refers to the repetition or continuous action of an individual. So there might be some things that you do once. There's other things like brushing your teeth. You do all the time. You do repeatedly. And that's the aspect here of practice. In fact, the English word has the same connotation to us. We talk about a doctor or a lawyer having a practice. What do we mean by that? I mean his occupation has a routine to it. You can go to him, you can expect he has, he's going to offer the same services that he offered yesterday, that he's going to offer tomorrow. The aspect here that there's a routine. And he's established that in a community. And therefore, because he's done the same thing in a community for a period of time, now he has a practice in that regard. An athlete that's going to, you see, perform on the stage or out in the field, he goes through a routine whereby he does those things that he's going to do in competition, he does them beforehand. And we call that practice. Not just in the sense that it's not the real thing, but the idea that it's something that's continual and habitual. The thing that these Christians then had learned and received, the thing that they'd seen and heard in the Apostle Paul, demanded that they live them out. Not just that they do them sporadically or once in a while. It wasn't an occasional thing. Nor was it just something that would be prompted by some circumstance that would come in their life. Now certainly the idea of suffering might very well be sporadic or occasional. But the compliance to all those things that they think about. The ultimate, you see, result of thinking about things that are true and that are just and that are lovely and that are of good report is that those those things become a way of living. It's interesting to note that, you know, Acts chapter 11 tells us that the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And so we recognize from that passage there came to be a time in which those who were followers of Jesus had a designation. They were named after Christ himself. We call ourselves Christians for the very same reason because it means a follower of Christ and there it is right there in the scriptures. A designation for ourselves. But before disciples were ever called Christians, how did the world designate those who were followers of Jesus? Where Luke tells us in Acts chapter 9 that when Saul of Tarsus was getting ready to go to put to death Christians, that he came to Jerusalem and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. What were they called? Well, they were called the way. So if I can find some of those people who are of the way, then I'll put them to death. Later on, this Saul became Paul. And he encountered opposition in Ephesus. And when he describes that, he says that they were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude. Acts chapter 19, verse 9. 
So even after they were called Christians, Paul continues to talk about and designate Christians as being people of the way. They are the way. Later on in chapter 19, verse 23, he says that about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. There's always been a commotion about the way. Because what Jesus did and what God did in directing men's lives was not just tell them, oh, here's something over here I want you to do. Here's something over here I want you to do. Here's something over here that I'd like for you to do. No, he set them on a path. And he says, this is the way you live. This is a way. And maybe it would be helpful to us in terms of our perception of who we are and what God has called us to. If we would refer to ourselves more often as people of the way. So that we would impress upon ourselves that this is something that we put into practice. That what we know about God is not just to be intellectually understood, but is to actually be put into our lives. And not just an occasion here and there. Not just related to a worship service or coming together in assembly. That this is how we live. That our commitment is to practice these things continually and habitually in our lives. To walk this way. Now what does Paul say about this? If we take the position that these things have to do with the things that he's talked about, that he told them to think about, and then he tells them to put them into practice, how does he relate that to them? Well, what he says ultimately is he says, you need to imitate me. You need to imitate me. Paul unashamedly encouraged others to imitate his life. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, he told the Corinthians, I urge you then, be imitators of me. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And then later on, he told the Philippian Christians in this very same book, chapter 3, verse 17, brethren, join in following my example. Now, let me ask you something. Have you ever said this? <laughs> Have you ever said to somebody who's not a Christian, oh, just follow me. Just follow me. Or someone you're trying to teach and about, the, about how they ought to live and say, well, just look at me. You just look at me and then you look at me and do what I do. You th- we think about that if we were ever to say those words. If you want to be pleasing to God, follow my example. How would it sound to us? How would it sound to others? You say, we might shy away from this approach. And I, I think probably that would be true of nearly all of us. We might even cringe a little bit to hear Paul say it. Because we recognize that Paul's not ultimately who we are following. So what does it mean to us for Paul to say follow me, or to say to the Philippians, follow me. Well, I don't know if I've ever said that to anybody in those straightforward languages of Paul, that you just follow me. I can think of two reasons, maybe, why I would have shied away from making that appeal to someone. One is because I'm not an apostle like Paul. Because we recognize that Paul had received the revelation of the full truth through the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Because the apostles themselves were divinely chosen ambassadors of Christ. Because God set them up to be those who would reflect Christ in every way. And that the church in the New Testament recognized that. That they relied upon the authoritative words and even the example of the apostles. It says in Acts chapter 2, after the church began, that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The Lord willing... We're going to consider some of that in a future lesson, the importance in the place of apostolic teaching and how it relates to the authority of the New Testament. But we recognize first off, when we think about Paul saying, follow me or imitate me, that Paul and the other apostles were uniquely qualified to say those words, to say, follow my example. And I'm not an apostle. But there's another reason. I'm not like Paul. 
Now, not just in the fact that I'm not an apostle and that you're not an apostle, but I recognize my failures. I'm aware of my failures. And I shy away from calling other people, all other people to follow my example because I know that I failed and I don't want them to follow in my failure or maybe more to the point, I know that they know my failures. So how would it sound to others if they know what I know about myself and they do know some of the things I know about myself if I say, follow me, what's the first response? It seems pompous, it seems arrogant and prideful for me to tell others to follow me. And so there are so many reasons, so many ways in which I'm not like the Apostle Paul. I fail to measure up to his passion for God, his willingness to suffer. What he talked about before, about counting everything at loss and throwing out his garbage that he may know Christ. His joy in the face of suffering. His contentment that we're going to talk about. His love for the lost. I fall short of all of those things that I am able to see and recognize through what the scriptures tell me about this apostle. And I think that probably all of us would make that same assessment about our lives. That we're not up there. We're not like Paul. And we say, well, that's a humble assessment of ourselves. And it is, in a sense, an assessment that comes for humility that we say we're not like Paul. But let me suggest this to you. It's only humble inasmuch as humility is defined as the acceptance and the honest confession of what is actually true. To say that about myself and not really feel that way about myself is hypocrisy. But could it be that apart from being an apostle, I could be like Paul? Could it be that apart from the divine inspiration that Paul received and the capacities that had along those lines, that Paul would call on me to be like him? And if he called on me to be like him, well, I also need to be an example to others. So I think in the context of whether or not we've ever said this about ourselves and the reason why we not, maybe the more pertinent question to our study is this. Does God expect me to present my life as an example to others? In that sense, does God want me to say the same thing Paul said about himself to the Philippians? Imitate me. We might be too quick to assume that Paul pointed to himself an example just because and only because he was an apostle. Certainly that was involved in it. But there are evidences that Paul was able to say those words because Paul was in the way. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, go back to that passage we referred to a few moments ago and read the rest of it. He says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He says, imitate me and keep your eyes on those who are following my example. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 12, he told Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love and faith and purity. He told Timothy to set an example. He told Timothy to put yourself in the position in terms of the qualities of truth and purity and morality in life that others would follow you in what you are doing. And so Paul recognized that there were others besides the apostles who were exemplary. There are others who are worthy of imitation. In fact, the whole New Testament, the context of disciple, is that the disciple would follow the teacher and the disciple himself would be someone that others would follow. So you take the word that I've given to you, commit it to other faithful men who will teach others also. But in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7, if I have this on here, in verse 7, he says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So one of the key elements to being a true leader for Christ in the spiritual realm is to lead by example and that the congregation is called upon to look not only at what an elder would teach but how an elder or another leader would actually live their lives. And so he says, imitate their faith. Same thing Paul said. Imitate me. 
Now it might be, and this is the point I think that challenges me the most when I think about shying away from setting myself as an example for others to follow. It might be that we're hesitant to point to our own lives as examples to follow because, you see, we're not living the way we ought to. And we know it, and other people may know it as well. And the idea here that I would live in such a way that I could be an example to others, that I could really put myself in that position or even say those words to someone, is a recognition that I'm confident in what I'm doing before God, and I'm truly following the one I'm designed to follow himself. So Paul says this, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now that's it, isn't it? That's the qualifier. If we're going to say, follow me, then what should follow, what should, on what basis should we say that? On what basis can we say that? In the context of our own failures and to recognize that we don't have the capacities of an apostle and that we don't have all truth revealed to us in a miraculous way or a supernatural way, how can we possibly say to an individual, follow me? And this is how Paul says it, and he is an apostle. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. If I'm following Christ, then shouldn't people follow me? In fact, if I'm following Christ, won't all of those who follow Christ also be following in the same pathway? This is precisely Paul's admonition. He was not just a qualified example because he was an apostle. He was traveling the way and walking and continuing obedience to Christ and therefore he became someone who was a light that could shine in the dark world. He was in essence the salt of the earth in the light of the world. Just as you and I are called upon to be. And, Paul, and Jesus says we are that if we are citizens in the kingdom of God. Now I'm not proposing in any way that in calling individuals to follow me I have any power or authority toward my own salvation or the salvation of others. It does not suggest that I am or could ever be any authority in any sense in terms of God's will. Jesus is the only one who is the head. And as the only one who is head, he is the only one who is in the lead. And everyone else who submits to his will is a follower. He is to be obeyed. But I want to suggest to you as we think about this, when we close this morning, that it's a serious responsibility to qualify my life to be an example to others. It's something that I have to care about, that I, that I can't be apathetic about or simply push to the side or in a hypocritical sort of humble way and say, well, I don't want anybody following me because I fail all the time. We need to recognize that as parents, as individuals that are older, as individuals that are in a position to have known the truth and do know the truth for some time, that all of that qualifies us or certainly puts us in the position of others following us in the ways that are right. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, God expects me to walk worthy of the calling with which I was called. That I'm traveling a pathway, and if I'm traveling the pathway, others will seek that pathway as well. And so the characteristics of those things that are good and, tra- and trustworthy and pure and right, characters of all of those things have to be things not only that I think about consistently, but I habitually put into my practice because somebody needs to follow me in that pathway. If others follow you, where will they end up? That's a serious question, isn't it? I used to go out on the water a bit with my, my little boat. And, I, and I've lived here a long time, but there's still some places that I get out in, the, uh, I get out in, uh, in Pine Island Sound or different places. And 
I'm not real sure how deep the water is. You know, it all kind of looks the same. Sometimes you get out there and you think, should I go this way or should I go that way or should I go that way? Because if I go this way, I might end up aground. Or if I go this way, I might end up on an oyster bar. Now, sometimes there's markers. And if you can find a marker, then you can go that way. But there's sometimes where there are no markers. And you just got to decide which way you're going to go. And there are a couple of ways that you can sort of figure that out at times. Sometimes you see another bigger boat fly through there and he doesn't get stuck. So you jump in behind him. And you think, if he doesn't get stuck, I'll be all right. You follow him. But you're watching, you're observing where he goes because if he ends up on that oyster bar, you'll be far back enough that you can turn around and go the other way because now you know that's not the way. Maybe you don't know which way it is, but you know it's not that way. There have been some times when I've been out there and I would just guess. <laughs> I think this is the way it goes. The water looks a different color, so I'll just take off. And I'll be going this way, cruising right along, and I'll look for there's somebody behind me. I'm thinking, okay, he either knows the way and I'm going the right way or he's following me and neither one of us know. <laughs> Sometimes it ends up that way. He's following me because he thinks I know the way. And I don't. You see, that's a serious responsibility, isn't it? When I set out my life to be someone who others will follow and I don't know the way, I'm not living the right way. I'm not truly confident in my own salvation. I'm doing what's right and here's someone's following me. And I look behind and think, whoa, I hope I'm going the right way. Now the real solution to that stay in the channel. That's the real solution to that, isn't it? Look for the markers that God has set up. Or if you're going to follow a boat, let it be Jesus. But Paul says, imitate me and follow me as I have followed Jesus. Now, here's the catch. If another person followed you, where would he end up? Here's the catch. Someone most assuredly is following you. You may not be able to immediately look behind and see them, but they're following you. Your children, your grandchildren, your spouse, people in your community and your neighbors. There's someone who's looking at your life and asking the question, is this the way I want to live? Is this the path, the way I want to go? And the only way that I can feel good about that, I can't stop those people from following me. I can't turn around and say, no, 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 don't look at me. Because they're looking. The only way I can feel confident about that is to look ahead and say, I'm going to follow Jesus. And therefore, if I follow Christ, everybody that's following me will be in the way too. So that's what Paul says. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Are you in Christ? Are you in the way? Are you following Christ? We want you to be a Christian. Not because there's a single act that will define your relationship to God and we want you to perform that act so you can be right with God. We want you to become a Christian because it is a way of life, a lifestyle that imitates Jesus our Savior and ultimately leads someplace. It leads to heaven. It provides all the blessings that come, not only in this life, but in the life that is to come. And everything that God wants for us is found in this way, in this path. So you must travel it. And it begins in faith. Will you turn away from the things of the world, repent of your sins, and through your faith in Jesus Christ, because you know Him and you know what He's done, that you will be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and become a Christian. Maybe we can help you do that. Let's stand. Let's sing.